Bob Geldorf, who was part of our iconic, an iconic figure in our own youth, Steve. And um, during a horrendous famine that gripped much of the Horn of Africa in the mid-80s, he released a song called Do They Know It's Christmas? And there was a sort of heightened awareness of some of the impact of massive inequalities across the world, some of it caused by debt burden, some of it caused by mismanagement. And it was for me in the context in my early 20s of teaching in that school that I began to realize that our Christian faith was both personal and public, that actually it was about our walk with Jesus Christ, but it couldn't be simply about our own relationship with him. If we were following a God who loved this world, then we had to respond to what we saw around us. And uh, there were a number, I think, of almost miraculous occurrences, and as often there are in places of desperation. I was talking to a woman who had no food left to feed her family. Uh, She hadn't eaten for a long time herself. And one day as she walked to the river, actually she almost crawled to the river really. It wasn't, uh, she could no longer walk fast. As she returned there was a bag of maize just sitting by the gate into her compound. No hint that anyone had been around. And as the famine went on, and I remember in one horrendous week, we buried 22 children from the village because there'd been a cholera outbreak. I got to the point where I thought there are no human answers at all. I wondered if I could carry on living in that place any longer. But the paradox was that as the human circumstance got beyond our capacity to cope, the church on a Sunday morning was growing faster than I have ever seen in my life. And it seemed to me there was a sort of mismatch between the things that we take as absolutely essential for our human needs and a deep spiritual hunger that says there is no hope anywhere else except to call out to God. There was political movement Some of it was very dodgy. Kenya agreed to boycott the Moscow Olympics. Uh, That was to do with the Russian invasion of Afghanistan. And as minute Kenya boycotted the Olympics, the grain ships started moving from the States to the coast of Kenya. And the armed forces were mobilized to bring a continual convoy of lorries into the eastern province, where people were handed out maize and beans and other essential foodstuffs. But there was always this sort of nagging sense that this was a political deal that had been struck rather than actually a basic response to human need, a basic response to the dignity of human beings. And so over the course of the next few years, the circumstances, and obviously the rain returned, and the subsistence farmers began to harvest a crop But in the midst of that, I asked one, early one Tuesday morning, I stood under the Kenyan flag for the school assembly on the hard-baked earth, 
And uh, very tentatively, I said, um, I'd like to read Mark's Gospel with anyone who would like to come and read Mark's Gospel with me. When school is finished, come to my house. It was a small two-roomed building on the edge of the school compound. Come to my house and we'll read, today we'll read Mark chapter 1 together. And 159 out of 160 pupils were waiting outside the house in the afternoon. We were sent quite a lot of money by churches from the UK. And that Christmas, there was a little bit more than we needed for any of the work around the school. And almost on a whim, I thought, what if we hire some maize lorries and we offer people the chance to go to the coast, to a Scripture Union camp for, um, for, for, for school children, secondary school children in Kenya? Now, many of these pupils had probably not traveled more than 10 miles from the school in their whole life. And so another Tuesday morning assembly, I said, um, I just wonder if anyone would like to go to Mombasa, to the coast, for, some Bibles, for a Bible week. Uh, the transport will not be comfortable. Nowadays it would have been illegal to do this, but uh, uh, in those days that was a common way you moved around. 159 out of 160 signed up that afternoon <laughs> to go to the week. And what was significant for me was one of those men, Julius Kiliviku, was in Winchester Cathedral on the 19th of September last year when I was made bishop. And he was sat two in on the row. And as this stream of bishops uh, moved, I broke from the procession and I threw my arms around him. And, uh, of course, he'd become a Christian on the beach But so had most of the 159 over a week. Because when January started, there was an astonishing fervor in the school. I had a beaten up old Jeep and older students came to me and said, can we, on Sunday afternoon, teacher, can you take us down the markets of the Yatta Plateau? We want to preach in the markets on a Sunday afternoon. And I found myself the chauffeur driving teams down that path. The 160th student was Safari Kiema, the son of the local witch doctor. He was a very influential character in the village. He had a different way of mitigating risk, which involved sort of slaughtering of chickens or even goats on the edges of your compound. And actually defending yourself from the spirits of your ancestors. And his father had said to Safari, whatever you do, don't ever go to the Bible studies that that teacher is running. And it was, uh, it was just five years ago that I discovered he was visiting Portsmouth and that he was leading one of the largest Pentecostal churches in eastern Kenya. So um, I, I came to think that I would preferred the evangelism and the teaching of the Christian faith to the teaching of physics and chemistry, and um, wasn't very good at the physics and chemistry. 
And uh, so I came to train in Oxford with a view to returning to the eastern province of Kenya. For one of the clear things was very few church leaders were prepared to work in the semi-arid lands. Ironically, the Roman Catholic priests would stay for 40 years. And they, they were the consistent religious leaders in the eastern province. But pretty well every other denomination would regard a posting to the semi-arid lands as a disciplinary posting. And actually, you'd use all your influence to get a town posting as quickly as possible and get out of the desert. And I thought, Lord, I, I want to be like the Catholics. I want to stay somewhere. I want to train and come back. And so I came to Oxford and started training. And in 1986, my wife and I, by then I had married, um, went back to Kutui, to the eastern province. And um, we had an amazing six weeks of sort of preparation for what would be a life and a calling. And on the plane, coming on Nairobi, um, actually on the runway on the British Airways plane, at the end of that six weeks, returning to Oxford, I had, I was, I thought I was half asleep, but I had a vision of a door closing emphatically. And this great sense, do you know the semi-arid land is not in eastern Kenya? The semi-arid land is in England. That the Kenyan church was growing beyond belief. People coming to Christ in both supernatural encounters with Jesus and in thought, you know, more carefully thought out rational decisions that people make. You can see both supernatural work and a sort of careful teaching of the word. And the churches were filling. And so I went to see the college principal. I said, I just wonder if I ought to serve in England, not in Kenya. And so I went to Sheffield. Uh, because South Yorkshire has the lowest church attendance figures in England. And I uh, spent 14 years in South Yorkshire. I was vicar of a village on the, just inside the Peak National Park on the Derbyshire-Yorkshire border. And I was there for, I was in that village for 10 years. And people came to Christ one at a time. But over 10 years, over 400 men and women came through our sitting room and just sat and looked together in small groups of four, five, six people at the basic beliefs of the Christian church. Is there a God? If there is a God, how do we know there's a God? We discover in Jesus that God has chosen to make himself known to us. And many of those came to Christ. And so I thought I'd stay there for the rest of my life. Uh, my children were born there. Sheffield Wednesday became uh, second to the church. <laughs> and um, uh, I got a letter in June 2001. Would I come to be interviewed to be vicar of Christchurch in Winchester? I wrote a fairly polite but quite robust reply to say that I thought God had called people to work in South Yorkshire 
and Hampshire had plenty of Christian ministers, why, would, why were they trying to asset strip the Church of God in South Yorkshire? Uh, to which I got another letter. We still want you to come to the interview. And um, my father took me to one side and said, you, you're quite good at influencing people. You didn't influence the invitation. Maybe you should do people the courtesy of visiting Winchester and visiting the church and see what the Lord does. So very reluctantly, we said we'd come and we drove down towards the M1 and at Chesterfield, my wife was in tears and we went round the roundabout twice and we drove back towards home. Six miles up the road to the next roundabout, we went round the roundabout (laughs) and drove back down here. And when we arrived in Winchester, they put us up in the Gifford House Hotel, which is amazing. And uh, it turned out there were six people being interviewed. I'd read the, other, the books the other five had written. And uh, I thought, oh, well, this is just an interesting few days out. Um, we went to ask for supper, my wife and I, as we awaited the interview. And we could hear a Christian conversation. I think it was probably members of the family church. You know, someone's talking about their home group. Someone's talking about a relative who'd come to Christ. I thought, I've never sat in a... I've never sat in anywhere like this in Sheffield, and you just hear people talking about Jesus. I said, Helen, we don't need to come here. And um, the following day, we were hosted for lunch with a couple who weren't eating. They just laid two places at the table. And uh, I, I was, again, a little bit robust in my comments. I said, look, this isn't hospitality. I'm, you can't watch me eat. I get your plates and come and sit down. If you're not going to eat, I'm not going to eat. And she, the wife was getting embarrassed and nudging the husband. Tell him, tell him. No, I can't tell him. Tell him, tell him. And they said, well, the whole church is praying and fasting today for the, for the decision we're making. That was the point for me that I then got a problem. I thought, if this church is really praying and fasting, what on earth is this about? And um, during the course of the interview, um, uh, which, uh, you know, they said, what's your plans, what's your strategy? And I said, well, I haven't got any. But so long as every year this church begins to reflect more faithfully the heart of God, so long as it becomes more generous, more welcoming, more a place of healing, more a place where Jesus is honored, That's my strategy. And um, halfway through the interview, Greg Haslam was praying. I didn't know who Greg Haslam was. And he had a compulsion from the Lord that he needed to come and speak to the interview panel. And so he came down and knocked on the door of the office and said, I need to speak to the Bishop of Basingstoke, who was chairing (laughs) chairing the panel. I've got a word for him. And the secretary looked at him I said, well, no, you can't speak to the bishop. He said, well, I've got a word from the Lord for him. (laughs) Well, you can't. Well, can I write it down, he said. Yes, you can. So he wrote down and included it. His name is David. And so that began for me a sort of astonishing sense of God crafting something in this city 
that was of him, that wasn't man-made, wasn't manipulated, wasn't influenced, but was simply men and women listening to God and beginning to respond to him. And I could go on now, but I must preach, so I'll... (laughs) Because, you know, Chris Kilby sharpened me up on evangelism like no one has ever done. It was, it was an astonishing, I couldn't wait to spend time with him to talk about, you know, hopes and dreams and the way that the family church generously gave um, the feast to the whole city. The, the astonishing offering of gifts that we've seen uh, over the last 10 years. And uh, with Steve, as he said, you know, I also count Steve as a friend. And so it's great to be here. Now, I'm going to try and preach a bit quicker than that. So, (laughs) Rob, thank you for reading Jeremiah. I'm going to read you Jeremiah 29, verses 4 to 14. And it's a privilege to be here in a city I love, in a church that, that God has placed at the heart of the city, but not just geographically at the heart. You know, it's just, it's not an accident that your building is here. Um, it's because actually the Lord has placed on you as a church a deep commitment uh, to, the, to this city. For I don't know if this is good theology for you, Steve, but for though day by day we must pray for the renewal of the church, that the Holy Spirit would renew this church by, his, by pouring upon you his gifts and his presence. Revival starts out there. I think that's right, isn't it? Renewal in here, revival there. Is that? Well, we'll talk another. He's he's smiling at me. This is what, verse 4, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also, verse 7, also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. For they are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. Verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Life does not always go the way we plan. I thought I was supposed to be married by now. I thought I was supposed to get the promotion. I was supposed to be able to afford to retire by now. I was supposed to have had children. I was supposed to have achieved my dreams. Or, 
I wasn't supposed to go bankrupt. I wasn't supposed to lose my job. I wasn't supposed to get divorce. I wasn't supposed to get cancer. That was not my plan. What do we do when life doesn't turn out the way you plan? Jeremiah said, for I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. God does not say, I know the plans that you have for you. He says, I know the plans I have for you. And God is always interrupting people's plans. Adam did not plan on being created. Noah did not plan on building an ark. Abraham did not plan on becoming the father of a new nation when he was already in his 90s. Esther did not plan on having to stop a genocide. Moses did not plan on having to defy Pharaoh. And Mary did not plan on getting pregnant. In the ancient world, nations worshipped tribal gods. The better the nation was doing, the higher the stator of the nation's God. And Israel aspired to be the greatest nation on earth, so that the God of Israel would be vindicated. They entered into the promised land after going through the wilderness. They escaped from Egypt. And for a while, things were on an upward course. There's the era of the judges. And finally, they get a king. They only have three. There is Saul. That doesn't work out too well. There's David and there's Solomon. And those were the glory days. And in 586 BC, a new superpower comes along under the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar. He obliterates the southern kingdom. And all the walled walled cities of Judah are destroyed. Jerusalem is destroyed. The temple is destroyed is destroyed. The leaders, their brightest and the best, are taken by Nebuchadnezzar into exile. They are forced to live in the city of Babylon. And so the Israelites now are living in a foreign country with radically different gods and radically different values and a different way of life. And exile was the greatest crisis in the history of Israel. But it was fundamental to Israel's story. Does God exist, or was that whole thing a myth? And so you have anguished statements like Psalm 137, when the psalmist says, By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Jerusalem. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, Sing one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord in a foreign land? How can we proclaim there is a God who is strong and good when it's all been shattered? And people have been thinking in terms of two strategies when it it comes to how they live in exile. The first one is this, the one that Babylon wants, for Israel to assimilate to exile. You see, Babylon was assimilating countries all over the place, and those countries resented what they were doing. They wanted to rebel. 
And so Babylon's strategy was this. Bring them to Babylon. Let them see our wealth, our splendor, and our glory, and then they'll adopt our ways. They will take on our values, our wealth, our splendor, and our glory. But if they did it, they would lose their identity. They would lose their purpose. They would lose their relationship with God. It would be easy. They'd lose the plot. The second strategy was to isolate themselves from the Babylons. That was very popular amongst the Israelites. There was a strong party that said Israel should have nothing to do with Babylon. Exile will be very short. It will not last. God is bringing you back home. Just wait. Don't have anything to do with Babylon. Isolate yourself from the culture. Have nothing to do with it. And then Jeremiah comes. This is what the Lord God, the Lord of Israel, says. The Lord Almighty. He's lost none of his strength. (coughs) Even though your plans are not working. The God of Israel. He's not forgotten his promise, even though you think he has. He is the big man. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. To all I carried into exile. That's a crisis. All I carried into exile. Who carried? Well, they would say Nebuchadnezzar carried us into exile. But God is up to something. God is up to something even in this exile. And then he says, build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat the produce. Marry your sons and your daughters. In other words, you're going to be there for a long time. For the generation who's hearing the message, you will not return. You will live and grow old, and you will die in Babylon. But you can handle it, because what you really need is not just in Jerusalem. I will be with you in Babylon. I will be with you in exile. Permeate the world in which you find yourselves. Build plant and marry. When you build a house, you are to bless it. That's an act of worship to God. When you plant a garden, you're to offer your first fruits as an act of worship to God. And when there's a marriage, bless that couple as they enter into a covenant in the eyes of God. In other words, you can worship God in Babylon. In other words, the God of Israel is also the God of Babylon. They just don't know it yet. Babylon's plan is to assimilate the Israelites into their kingdom. God's plan is to assimilate Babylon into God's kingdom. And one of the deepest lessons I think we need to learn, perhaps particularly in our Western culture in the 21st century, is that we can learn to live the with God life in Babylon where things do not turn out the way we plan them. For the with God life is what we're about. Jesus says in John's Gospel, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. I remember a friend talking about his daughter. She had asked Jesus into her life, And he said this, no, she put her hand here and said, I can tell Jesus is in my heart because I can feel his footsteps walking around in here. I guess it was her heartbeat. Well, Jesus does want to walk around in here for each one of us. 
He wants to make his home in us. And that's why the mission of this church, the hope of church, is to make you mature in Jesus Christ. That as you gather here to learn together, to belong together, to heal and serve together, it's through the indwelling presence of Jesus. And Jeremiah has already told the people they'll be in exile for a long time. But look what happens next. And this, for me, is astonishing. He says, Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. This is an astonishing document. Where's the stuff on home groups? Where's the stuff on the giving, giving money to the life of the church? Where's the stuff on the prayer meeting? This is about blessing and working for the prosperity of the city. This is outward focused. This is about what God has called you to do out there. I was driving down thinking, I hope it's not the farmer's market. Where am I going to park? And it's not the farmer's market. But the farmer's market is in here. Not as an irritant in terms of of the rare resource of the parking space, but as the mission field of the Hope Church. It's astonishing. The messenger unrolls the scroll from Jerusalem. And Jeremiah has sent the message, I want you to pray to the God of Israel for the city of Babylon. And they would say, well, hang on a minute. Wasn't that the city that destroyed our country? Wasn't that the city that took us into exile? And the prophet says, I want you to devote your energies and your skills to bring peace to the people who brought war on you. I want you to bring prosperity to the city that devastated your city. And that is radical. There is nothing on earth, there is no philosophy, no strategy that is as radical as this one. That we will seek to bless those who have meant us harm. That we will seek peace amongst the people who meant to bring destruction. I think there's an astonishing implication for us in 2015. For I think the Lord would say to us, I don't want you to assimilate to the culture you find yourself in, for there are going to be values, idolatries, and lifestyles that you must be distinctive from. I don't want you to live like they live. I want you to walk close to me. Don't get caught up with them, because that would be the easiest thing. But never isolate yourself either. I want you to become salt and light and permeate the city. And I want you to pray for the city. And Jesus, uh, Jeremiah uses these striking words. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city, because when the city prospers, you will prosper. The word translated peace in this passage is one of the most important words 
in the whole of the Old Testament. It is the word shalom. Shalom, peace. But it's not peace of mind. It's not simply a ceasefire between enemies. For in the Bible, shalom means a universal flourishing, a wholeness, a delight, at peace with God, at peace with our fellow human beings, at peace with creation. It's about human flourishing. And I believe the Lord would say to us, I want you to engage in work, in business, in culture, in the arts, in education, in care for the poor, in technology, in how you live with your neighbor, in how you handle your finances in such a way that this city will flourish as God meant a city to flourish. I want you to live depending on me in such a way that the Babylonians will look at you and say, you know, it's a funny thing about Israel. Not sure we believe in their God. We certainly don't belong to their religion. I don't believe in their ideas, but I'm very glad they're here. That's what I've always longed for in the churches I've led. It's what I long for for you. The people walking past, people on the farmer's market would say they're a bit strange over there. But I'm jolly glad they're here. This city of Winchester is a better place because those people, whether it's the aura, whether it's the acts of service, whether it's because when they know that's a place where the brokenhearted are made whole, where the hungry are fed, where those who are gripped in a prison of debt are given the keys to unlock the doors. I may not agree with all they they believe in and all they do, but I'm so glad they're here. That's what we want. I think that's the step that we long for. That's how I believe the Lord would want us to be present in our culture. In other words, we're a generation transformed by a relationship with Jesus Christ that have discovered an authentic community in how we live with each other. And then we find that we can help a city to flourish. You see, I think God does care about Hampshire. I think Kenya is ahead of Hampshire in his heart and Yorkshire is ahead of Hampshire in this country. (laughs) No, God cares about Hampshire. Uh, Don't record that, don't remember that bit. That was David Williams, that wasn't the Lord. (laughs) I think he cares about Winchester. I think he cares about Charles Ford and Week and Hairstock and Stanmore and St. Cross and South Wonston and Ropley and Twyford and Compton and Otterbourne, about IBM and the Winchester Prison, the Royal Hampshire Hospital, the County Council offices, Sparshot College, Winchester University, the Southampton School of Art. He cares about the screen, the Queen, the Bell. The Queen's gone. No, the Queen. No, the old, yeah. No, the new Queen's gone. The old Queen's still there. And the Fullfoot Flood. He cares about Stanmore School, Oliver's Battery School, Western School, St Bede School, Pilgrim School, Winchester College. He's concerned about little lives that get aborted and never had a chance to grow up. He cares about those who are addicted. He cares about the homeless. He cares about the chief executive officers of our companies and businesses. Most people come to Babylon. Most people come to Winchester to get something from it to get discovered, to get rich, to get pleasure, to 
enjoy the ambiance, to send their children to superb schools, to get nice neighbours, to even find a church that has lots of people like them in it. But I think God would say something completely different. I want a people who will go to Babylon, who will go to Winchester, because they think (coughs) that they're living with me. And if they're living with me, I came to give, not to take. I came for how I could serve, not how I could be served. And what if the Christians in this city, rather than a group of men and women and young people too, who would take from the culture, are a people who will not, but will give to the culture? What if there are people who will not be co-opted into a culture, but will offer a distinctive gift to it? You see, what happens when we take seriously our living in Winchester and actually getting to know people outside of our church, and that was some of the loveliest testimonies in the CAP team, is you will get to know people who do not believe in God. And what I find difficult about that is very often I'm finding people who are really kind, who are really wise, who are better and even sometimes more generous than I am. And they're not part of the church. And that starts to unsettle me. You see, a gospel that is really a gospel of grace, that is based on the work of Jesus and not on my good works, will either humble you so deeply that it will drain you of all judgmentalism and will take every bit of superiority out of you, or you will secretly cling so deeply to your own sense of superiority that you will give up on the gospel of grace. For it is through this gospel, as we grow to maturity in Christ by learning and belonging and healing and serving together that we pray for and seek the peace and prosperity, the shalom, the flourishing of our own little world of Winchester, of our Babylon. Now, where does that happen? It happens wherever you go, for Jesus will go with you. Whether it's the ark here or whether it's the preschool group that you take your children to, Because I believe the mothers of our young children could use a little shalom. When someone is kind or helpful to a stressed out young mother, a little shalom breaks out. When you're at the office and you take a moment to care for your customer or your client, or when you go directly to a colleague to work out a problem, Or when you ask God to help you work with a better attitude in your workplace for his glory, not because you've got a good boss, for his glory, shalom breaks out in your office, for Jesus is there. When someone is patient with their back office, when someone volunteers to give resources or time to an overworked classroom teacher, when someone goes to pray with someone who is sick, When you, in Jesus' name, seek to enhance the work of one of our youth organizations in this city, when you, in Jesus' name, through the street pastors or the Trinity Center, the night shelter, the basics bank or the CAP program, 
when you seek to enable this city to love its neighbours, when you, through a book club, help someone to search for knowledge and understanding that can set them on a path towards the truth, then we become a Jeremiah 29 church, and shalom breaks out in Winchester. The death of a dream can be the most painful thing in, a wo- in the world. But out of the ashes of a dead dream was born another dream. For centuries later, so that the whole world would hear the story of a man named Jesus, who knew all about exile. Because that was his life. When he became human, the incarnation itself was an exile from heaven. When Jesus was an infant, Herod tried to kill him. He spent the earliest part of his life as a refugee in Egypt, fleeing the hostile regime of Herod. His family lived in exile when he was a little boy. Throughout much of his ministry, he was in exile. He said one time, you know the birds of the air have their nests, the foxes have a hole in the ground, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. But his final steps were to carry a cross outside the gates of Jerusalem. Because a crucifixion by law had to happen outside the walls of the city. So it could communicate to everyone that the one who's being crucified is also being rejected. He's dying in exile outside the city. And so Jesus suffered outside the city gate. The one last step into the ultimate exile. And on the cross, he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he dies. And all his followers' dreams die with him. But out of the ashes of that dream arises another dream of a resurrection gospel that will reconcile sinners to God. And that's the plan. You and I live in exile so that we die to our own little self-preoccupied plans. And we are invited to become part of God's greater, glorious plan to redeem the world. I know the plans I have for you, and for you, and for you, and for you, and for you, says the Lord. They're not your plans, they're not my plans, they're not Steve's plans, they're not the elder's plans. They're his plans for you. They're probably not easy plans. And they're surely not pain-free plans. They are just Jesus' plans. They're just the hope of the world. They're just the hope of Winchester. 
And so I was always envious of the bingo hall you bought. But I think I'm even more envious of your name. Hope of Winchester. Hope Church. I don't know if the Lord gave you the name or whether some, you had someone with PR skills in the church, but surely it's the very essence of what you're called to be. But it's not easy. It's not pain-free. You have dared to walk, I believe, one of the most sacrificial roads you could ever take. Sorry, you wanted to build... You didn't want a hardwood, did you? You wanted a... <laughs> I know the plans I have for you, not our plans, not easy plans, but they're the best. They're the best plans. Shall we stand and pray? The Lord would say over you as a church, I know the plans I have for you. I believe the Lord would say over each one of us, I know the plans I have for you. Lord, they're not our plans. They're not not easy plans. But they are better plans.